Our text this morning, as we continue through our studies in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43 is our text. The topic is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as seen by Luke. And the title of our message, Crosswords Muzzled. You can start the snow anytime. But... No, never mind. Okay. Luke 23:26. And now as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who is coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds." This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Lord, I appreciate the songs that we sang this morning. There's so much in keeping with this marvelous scene on Calvary, Lord. And we thank you so much that you went to the cross for us. We appreciate the words you spoke from the cross, the salvation that you offered to the thief and all the others that were there and all the others throughout time and eternity, Lord, that we could come to know you, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, be saved from sin and death and the eternity in hell and live with you and for you on this earth and then forever and ever and ever. I want to pray, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning, anybody at all, young or old, man or woman, they don't know you as their Savior, that that issue would just be driven home to their heart by your Holy Spirit in a beautiful, precious, loving, even romantic way. That there would be a sense that God is pursuing that person this morning in a relentless yet loving pursuit to bring them the knowledge of eternal life. For those of us, Lord, who know you and are Christians, I pray that when we're done this morning, Lord, your Holy Spirit will have shown us the cross and that we will want to boast in it and glory in it. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
Amen. Suppose you're a teacher's aide in the Pittsburgh area. One day you get called into the administration office. You are in violation of the Pennsylvania public school code because you wear a one and a quarter inch cross pendant on a necklace. You aren't aware of it, but the code specifically prohibits wearing what it labels as religious garb. If you insist on wearing the cross, it must be tucked away so as to not be visible or you will lose your job. What do you do? Do you honor the code? Brenda Nichols refused to comply. She was suspended from her job and decided to sue. She eventually won back her job in a settlement in federal court. When asked about the regulation, Brenda Nichols said, I could not follow that code in my heart. I could not deny Christ. You may not wear a cross as a pendant or any other type of cross related jewelry, but there is a spiritual sense in which the cross of Jesus Christ should be evident in your life. Twice in the gospel of Luke, Jesus had referred his followers to the cross in Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, I quote, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, and I quote, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Taking up and bearing the cross were vivid images in the first century. The Romans, of course, executed by crucifixion. Often a condemned person could be seen taking up their cross and bearing it to the place of crucifixion. When Jesus used this imagery, his listeners and followers understood that the way they lived was to be noticeably different from the rest of the world. They should be seen and heard as if they were taking up and bearing the cross in their daily lives. The characters in our verses from Luke will help us to understand some of what it means to take up and bear the cross. We see Simon carrying the cross and we hear the repentant thief glorying in the cross. We'll organize our thoughts around two questions. Number one, can you be seen carrying the cross? And number two, can you be heard glorying in the cross? Let's take a, uh, a look, first of all, at verses 26 through 31 and ask ourselves, can you be seen carrying the cross? Your daily activities and your attitudes while performing them are opportunities for others to see that you are a follower of Jesus who has died to yourself in order to live for him. People should therefore see you in a spiritual sense carrying the cross. The only other man reported in the Bible who can actually be seen carrying a cross is Simon. Others were crucified, but only he carries a cross. And so we'd expect to be able to learn something about it from him. So let's take a look at verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. When Jesus succumbed to physical exhaustion, carrying the cross, the Roman soldiers requisitioned a passerby to carry the cross the rest of the distance. The language in our English translation is instructive. Referring to the cross, Luke said Simon might bear it after Jesus. Of course, he meant that Simon would bear the real cross of Jesus following after the Lord, behind the Lord, as he was led to the place of his crucifixion. 
But the words also look forward to anyone who wishes to follow Jesus as a believer. Jesus told us we were to daily take up the cross and follow him. In a very real spiritual sense, we are to bear the cross after Jesus. He bore it first for us. Now we bear it after him. We take it up daily by dying to ourself and doing what the Lord asks us to do. Now I've heard it said that if you could be anyone in the Bible, you'd want to be Simon because he served the Lord in this remarkable way. You have to understand, however, what it was really like for Simon at that time. To bear the cross of Jesus on that day at that time was not an honor the way we look at it, looking back, knowing what we know about Jesus. To Simon, it meant at least two things, separation and shame. Cyrene what is, uh, was in what is now Libya in North Africa. We know that there was a large Jewish colony there. It's probable that Simon was a Jew who had come over 800 miles to Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. This was the trip literally of a lifetime for Simon. I mean, you and I might be able to jump on a jet and go to Europe or uh, someplace like that, that, that. you know. And maybe some of you have this in mind that, man, there's just, just this place I want to go to. Uh, I just we've been saving our money and or as soon as I retire, we're going to do this or do that. And and and, and you can at least identify hey, this is great. This is the one thing that I want to do. And for Simon, it was to go to Jerusalem as a Cyrenian Jew to make that trek uh, in that, those difficult conditions and to get to Jerusalem and to offer his lamb on the Passover and to worship his God in the temple. This was the trip of a lifetime. And here he was on his way into the temple when suddenly the quantirian of Roman soldiers who were responsible for crucifying Christ, Jesus succumbing to exhaustion, they surveyed the crowd and whether it was his skin color or he was taller than others or he was just kind of, you know, uh, in the big city and didn't know what was going on, they grabbed him and pulled him in and said, you're carrying the cross the rest of the way. And it was well within their rights to do that. It was, it was something that, that could happen. This was, uh, this was the end of an inglorious afternoon for Simon, this was the worst thing at that moment that could happen to him for a couple of reasons. Number one, coming into contact with blood, which he would have by carrying that cross member for the Lord, it would render him ceremonially unclean. That simply meant he could not go into the temple and offer his sacrifice. And so the thing that he had dreamed of doing perhaps for years, it was over in a moment. He would probably never have that opportunity again. He would have to remain separate from all the other worshipers. His trip was, for the time being, ruined. After he carried the cross, we don't know what happened exactly, but he'd be covered with blood and, and, and have to walk away from the... And no one would want to be anywhere near him because they wouldn't want to come into contact with blood either. And so he was separate. Only later would Simon understand that he had come into contact with the blood that fully and finally made him clean. That he had come into contact with the blood of God's Lamb who would die for the sins of the world. And there is evidence in Scripture that Simon became a Christian. His family and he and his family are referenced in some of the New Testament letters as being solid Christians. 
But all of that is hindsight. And what was happening there was terrible for Simon. Carrying the cross always at some point in your life, it means separation. And it can be severe. For example, earlier when I quoted Jesus saying you must bear your cross, he also said at that time, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You get saved. You're in love with Jesus. And what do you do? You tell your family. How do they respond? In many cases, they respond as if you hated them. Because you love Jesus more than them. You seem to love the Lord and other Christians even more than your natural family. I'll never forget the day I went into my father's shop. My old brothers all worked there. I used to work there and they were having lunch. And I never forget the day I went in and told them that I was going into the ministry. My dad just walked away. He didn't even say anything. My brothers were stunned. One of my brothers said, hey, that's neat. And then they all just went back to work. I can't forget telling them I became a Christian. They didn't even know what that meant. But then as I started going to church, they thought I was crazy. What are you doing going to church? And then, God forbid that there would be a church service on a holiday. What do you mean you're going to church on Christmas? Christmas, we get together, we get drunk, we tell dirty stories, we, we announce divorces. <laughs> These are all true things that have happened in my past at Christmas Eve and Christmas morning family times. You know, and the thing is, it's not that I don't love my mom and dad. I love them ever, all the more that I became a Christian. Never told my dad I loved him until I became a Christian. And I don't think my brothers have ever told him that they loved him. And, it, it, you know, my mom, I love my, I love my brothers for the most part. <laughs> I actually do. I, I, but, and it wasn't just going into the ministries before, just as being a Christian and making some of those decisions. And, and hey, what's the matter? Isn't family important to you? Blood is thicker than water. Those people, that's how they always refer to Christians, those people... They're not going to do anything for you. They're not going to be there for you. They're not your family. Well, actually, they are. But, but it's a transaction that's not understandable, and, and it's difficult sometimes. I remember when we were going to move here to Hanford, my, I knew they weren't serious in one sense, but in another sense they were. I, my dad, thre- he, he wanted to take our kids away from us because he thought we were involved in a cult. It was one thing where they could watch over us down in you know, Southern California. You know, We couldn't get too crazy. But once we were gone to, you know, central California, whew, it's crazy. Now, I'm joking about it, but it hurts. It's, it's hard. And you know, some of you know this. And some of you, I'm going to be bold here this morning, some of you need to know this. Some of you sometimes make decisions that don't show the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, I don't want to hurt my family. Oh, man, you better help your family. They better know that you love Jesus Christ more than anything or anybody else in the world. And yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. It's crisis. And and there's crying and there's tears and there's, there's heartache and bitterness over it. But when it's all said and done, they know who you love and who loves you. And they know how important all of that is. 
there comes a time for separation. Not just from people, but sometimes from places. Sometimes from things that are in the world. Bearing the cross. If you're going to really commit to Jesus as his disciple, you can't allow those things to interfere. Secondly, carrying the cross of Jesus was, at that moment, something shameful. Walking along, Simon would be pitied by some in the crowd, mocked by others. I would have been making so much fun of Simon. You loser. What a loser. Hey, didn't you see those Roman soldiers coming over? I mean, a lot of people followed crucifixions and and local people knew what was going on. Simon was like, oh, I'm from Cyrene. Can you tell? Which way to the temple? And, you know, and, and, and so he didn't know what was going on. And so when, when the crowd sees that Jesus is stumbling and falling under the cross member, and they're starting to think, hey, the Roman soldiers are going to be looking for somebody, they all begin to pull away. It's kind of like volunteering in the military. Everybody steps back except you because you didn't get the memo, you know, and, and so you're the volunteer. And all of a sudden, there's just Simon and the Roman soldiers pulling him in to this service. And so this is a pitiable kind of a theme. It was a shame. When discussing the crucifixion of Jesus, the writer of the book of Hebrews said that Jesus even despised the shame of it, but he went ahead with it for the joy that was set before him. Part of his joy was to be obedient to his Father in heaven in order to redeem and save lost mankind. If you're a Christian, you're going to sometimes be treated this way by the world. You're going to have to despise the shame of it, but if you endure it, you will be seen carrying the cross. Now, we next encounter a group of women following along. In verse 27, it says, A great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. As I mentioned, a crucifixion was a big public event. People followed the procession and watched the procedures. The ladies mentioned are not disciples. They're not believers. Jesus will call them in a minute daughters of Jerusalem. They appear to be, and it sounds funny to us, but I I think you can relate to this. They're a group of women who frequented crucifixions doing the good work of mourning for the victims. They were kind of good Samaritans, as it were, although they wouldn't have called themselves Samaritans since they were Jewish and Jews hated Samaritans, so don't correct me at the door. I understand that. But anyway, <laughs> they were just good ladies who thought somebody's, you know, somebody's son is dying on that cross and his mother couldn't be here, so we're going to mourn and lament for him because we're a mourning and lamenting kind of people and that's, that's what you deserve when you die, some mourning and lamenting. And so they were this group of almost professional women. The spectacle was misunderstood and their sympathy was misdirected. It wasn't Jesus they should be concerned about, but themselves. And so in verse 28, Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? It, it's just amazing in and of itself. It's a tremendous devotion just to consider Jesus on his way to be crucified, still listening to, hearing, and ministering to others. More concerned about the condition of these women than his own situation. And he's still preaching the warning of the gospel. He gave them a prophecy and he gave them a parable. 
The prophecy was about the horrors of the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans would be about 40 years from this date in 70 A.D. And indeed, if you read the secular history of that from the Jewish historian Josephus, literally they, they ate their infants after they died because of the starvation that was taking place. The parable was about green and dry wood. And Jesus seems to be saying that, hey, I'm the green wood of Israel. I can bring forth fruit. You're going to be dry after I'm gone, having rejected me. If Rome does this to me, think what they're going to do to you in that future time. And so it's a real stirring warning. Instead of their curiosity about or concern for the cross of Jesus, they ought to look at Simon and realize that each one of them must carry the cross. Jesus having this amazing illustration for them right at that moment. Maybe he said something about it. Maybe he didn't have to. But it's like, hey, you're worried about me being crucified. I'm being crucified for you. I'm bearing your cross. Look at Simon. This is a picture of what happens if I don't bear your cross. You bear it yourself. So don't worry about me. I know what I'm doing. Do you? They didn't. So each of us in our lives must show the cross. If there's no separation from people or places or things, if there is no shame or reproach ever from the world, then how can we say that we're carrying the cross? And I know you want to. And then in verses 32 through 43, can you be heard glorying in the cross? Two thieves are crucified with Jesus. Luke emphasizes their dialogue while they're on the cross. One, now, now here, I'm going to give you the, the key to the title this morning. Are you ready? One has cross words for Jesus. Get it? The other tells him to shut up. He muzzles him. So his cross words are muzzled. This is what I do during the week while you're working. (laughs) The insight we want to draw is that you should be heard glorying in the cross because this is what the thief did. Verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. By the way, I mentioned this last week. The gospel writers are more interested in the significance of the cross than in the suffering of the cross. Very reserved when you read the accounts of the crucifixion all throughout scripture. Descriptive but reserved. It is what is significant about Christ's death, not the depth of his suffering that is important. The insight we want to draw is that you should be heard glorying in the cross. Now, the Latin for Calvary is calvaria, it means skull. In Greek, it would be the word cranian, where we get our word cranium. The Aramaic word is Golgotha. Whether Calvary resembles a skull, or whether it was named that because of the many executions that took place there, we just don't know. There is a place outside Jerusalem called Gordon's Calvary. It's named by a guy, General Gordon, who discovered it, Because from a distance, it's a hill, and from a distance, there's the outline of a skull. And I've seen pictures of it, and it's in a lot of Bible dictionaries. And and so they call it Gordon's Calvary. It's not the traditional spot that the tour guides take you to. uh, But many believe this would be the spot 
where Jesus was crucified. We really don't know, however. And just a piece of Bible trivia that I came across. The the New Testament doesn't say that Jesus was crucified on a hill far away. Uh, It's a hymnology that have grown. And and it's okay. He may have been. I'm not. I mean, I love that song. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Anyway, so, but, but it's not really, it's not in the script, doubtful actually that it was on a hill. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus uttered seven sayings from the cross. We like to talk about them around Easter time. They're, they're phenomenal. Luke emphasized forgiveness. If you read all the gospel accounts and understand the language, Jesus repeatedly asked his father to forgive them. It was something he said many times from the cross. Forgive who? I only say that because if you do a lot of reading, you're going to encounter some scholars who try to limit the group of people that Jesus was asking his father to forgive. And and it really has more to do with their particular theology than anything that you'd ever conclude i see no reason to limit it jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole human race it was a universal provision for the universal problem of sin any and all of those who personally trust jesus for their salvation are saved the dividing of his garments is a fulfillment of old testament prophecy Luke mentions it because he wants to remind any reader that this death was planned by God from the foundation of the world. Jesus was not a religious or a social martyr. He was the savior of the world. He went to the cross of his own volition. He was in control of all of those circumstances. He dismissed his own spirit and was raised from the dead in his own power This is not just a man dying. This is God-man dying on the cross as ordained from before the foundation of the world. Verse 35, the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Some stood silent. Some sneered. Others scorned. It's the same today as you share about Jesus Christ with unbelievers. He's ready to save them, offering them forgiveness. The cross, however, is an offense to them. They don't want to identify with it. You know, in order for somebody to receive Christ, to accept Jesus Christ... There has to be some acknowledgement that they deserve to die for their sins. They should be crucified instead of Christ. But he was crucified instead of them in their place. You're not really giving somebody the gospel if they don't understand they're a sinner. You need to be saved from sin, not just be made a better person. Not just have a better feeling about yourself. Not get in touch with your inner self or your inner child or something like that. This isn't a mind game. This is a sin transaction. People are born having inherited sin from their parents and their parents from their parents all the way to Adam and Eve. The whole human race has sin charged against it. And then we commit individual acts of sin. 
And yet so often we don't want to talk about sin. Sin is the problem with our world, with our universe. It's why there are people like Charles Manson and Adolf Hitler. It's why there is cancer. It's why there are disasters uh, uh, on a natural basis like earthquakes and hurricanes and floods and tsunamis. The problem is sin, and so we better talk about it because there's a solution for it. And the solution for it is faith in Jesus Christ. And, And so sin is what's happening. And when you start sharing Christ, people at some point are going to recognize, hey, you're saying there's something wrong with me. Not just something wrong. You're saying I'm a hell-doomed sinner just like Charles Manson, just like Adolf Hitler. I'm not like those people. Oh, sure, I lie and cheat and steal and commit adultery, but I'm not like those people. Well, if you've broken God's law in any part, you're guilty of all. It's hard for people to believe that, isn't it? I mean, even you get pulled over out here. They're pulling people over left and right over here on Terrace and Dowdy. I mean, they sit there all day. And they need to be because people are blowing that stop, light, or stop sign like crazy. No one stops there. They could write 100 tickets an hour there if they wanted to. I bet you half of the people they stop in front here say, How come you didn't stop that guy? Because I stopped you. It doesn't matter that the other guy got away. But it doesn't matter how bad or good he is. You broke the law. Sure, there's a bunch of people down below. Man, when I see that the cop is here, I know I can blow the next stop sign, right? Because there's nobody around. I don't do it. You broke the law. You're guilty. It doesn't matter what other people do, how bad it is. I mean, they, they, you know, if he pulls you over, you don't say, hey, why don't you go find a murderer right now? But you know, there are a lot of people, I've seen it on tape, and you've probably said it. Don't you guys have anything better to do than to write seatbelt tickets? If I want to die, it's my business. You know, whoever said seatbelt or, you know, uh, helmet tickets if you're a motorcycle rider. Don't you guys have anything better to do? Yeah, they got stuff that better to do, but right now they're writing you a ticket because you're a lawbreaker. You are, and you can tear that ticket up, and you know what? They'll find you eventually. And then you'll find out what it means to break the law. And then you'll say, hey, all I did was run a stop sign. Oh, no, you did far more than that. You ignored the law. And now it's piled up against you. There's warrants out for your arrest. I'm going to throw your sad carcass in jail. (laughs) And that's how it works if you're a sinner. See, I mean, nobody, I'm not a sinner. I'm not Charles Manson. I'm not any of these people. I'm a nice guy. I have a job, a wife, and kids. My life's falling apart, but that's okay. Everybody else's is too. And when you start sharing Christ, oh man, it's going to offend people if they understand what you're saying. Two sinners died there with Jesus. Their responses represent the only two responses that are possible. You either believe or you don't. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. The other Gospels describe both thieves as ridiculing Jesus at first. Then one has this change of heart. It's a reminder that all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins. All of us start off as unbelieving sinners. It wasn't that this one guy was inherently better than the other guy. He wasn't falsely accused. They were both sinners, both deserved to die 
and then one of them turns to Christ. Why this sudden change of heart? How did one come to an awareness of his sin and need for salvation? It remains a blessed mystery. No one can answer that. All I can say is that Jesus understood that anyone in that crowd, either thief, could be saved because when he spoke to his father, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, Lord, any of them. All of them, should they come to faith in Jesus Christ, forgive them. He didn't say, Father, forgive this guy that was chosen before the foundation of the world, the only one here that I'm really dying for. He didn't say that at all. The cross is the universal provision for the universal problem of sin. Why some respond and some don't, it's not for us to say. Just preach the gospel, be instant in season and out of season, and let the gospel do its work. It's a free decision of faith. Let's just leave it at that and go forth preaching the gospel. Verse 42, and then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Man, does it take faith to see Jesus as king over a kingdom on that day while he's hanging on the cross? I mean, do you understand that? We kind of look back on this and think, yeah, man, there's the king dying for our sins. He's coming back. To look at Jesus while he's dying on the cross and you're about to die and say, you're a king, you're coming into your kingdom, remember me. This is either really wishful thinking or tremendous faith. The thief repented. He acknowledged his own guilt. He turned to the Lord. He believed that Jesus had the power and the will to save him. And he prayed really the first sinner's prayer of the new era that was beginning. And Jesus said to him in verse 43, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's get a few things out of the way. Jesus' answer today rules out the idea of soul sleep. Some of you maybe are familiar with this. There is a teaching among some uh, groups, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, that if you die both your body and your soul go into a, an unconscious sleep awaiting the final resurrection. And so you're just kind of sleeping for however long. Jesus said to this guy, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And that rules out any thought of soul sleep. Jesus' answer today rules out any possibility of there being a purgatory. Now I'm going to tell you, I wish there was a purgatory. It would save a lot of people. Purgatory really is this idea that after you die, if you're not quite good enough to go to heaven, you can suffer in this place, torment, until you've been purified. It's a marvelous idea. It's a fantastic idea. I don't have to be Mother Teresa. I can be anybody I want to be. I can be as holy or as sinful as I want to be. Spend 10 years or 10,000 years in purgatory and finally get into heaven. There's only a couple problems with it. One is a completely bogus, false, man-made idea. Not taught in the Bible. And the other is Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today you're going to go to purgatory. Hey, cheer up. 10,000 years from now, I'll see you. I don't need to tell you that Jesus' answer today also rules out baptism as being necessary for salvation. Jesus didn't turn and say, man, I wish 10 minutes ago you would have said that. (laughs) We could have got you sprinkled at least, you know, but too late for you now. Or any other work or works that are necessary for salvation. 
And I think it's pretty clear, unless you're really stretching things, that the thief on the cross, all he did was literally turn to Jesus and confess him as Christ and ask him to save him. And there's nothing else going on other than that. There's no works. There's nothing except grace and faith. And that's how a person gets saved still. The Bible is clear. The moment a believer dies, he or she is absent from their physical body and spiritually present with the Lord. And the Lord is where? He's in heaven. Unbelievers who die face judgment and punishment, not purgatory. Look back now at the repentant thief. We would say that he gloried in the cross. While others stood silent, sneering and scorning, he gloried and glorified God by proclaiming, I believe that Jesus on this cross, you're saving me. And there's a sense of glory in it. He reminds me of the stories of the martyrs who as as they're being led away to their various forms of martyrdom, whether they're going to be crucified or burned at the stake or torn apart by wild beasts, often, often in these stories, those that are bringing them to their place of martyrdom, the soldiers or or, uh, the guards, will get saved. They'll put down their weapons and they will join them and be martyred with them. And what they're really saying is, uh, we glory in this. This is how we're saved. You see it as a shame. You see it as, as, as awful. You see it as a humiliation. But this is glorious. That God would come and die on that cross that we might live forever. In this I glory. And that's why Paul the Apostle was able to say in Galatians, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus by whom the world is crucified to me. And I to the world for our purposes this morning to glory means we can be heard through our lives declaring the blessings of the cross. We glory that we have peace with God, pardon from sin, eternal salvation and everything else promised to us in the Bible. And we can be heard glorying the loudest in the midst of enduring reproach and shame when we identify with Jesus Christ. Hey, nothing worse is going to happen to you than happen to this thief. I mean, he's. He's crucified. He's on the cross, crucified. Deserves to be there, but he gets saved. And he doesn't say, now, Lord, let's sue these guys. This is a phony thing that they're doing. How about we boycott the Roman government? He doesn't do any of that. Now, please, sometimes I hyperbolize. (laughs) I exaggerate. I don't have anything wrong with the concept of boycotts and lawsuits. But I got to tell you, this is the first thing Christians think of. We're going to boycott something. Let's do it. As long as it's not my favorite store. As long as it's not Disneyland. You know, and so let's, let's boycott something. Let's file a lawsuit. Okay, that's fine. We're in a free society. We have rights. We can do that. How about we bear the cross while we're doing it? Or how about we just bear the cross? If there's never any humiliation, if there's never any shame, if there's never any reproach, how are they going to see Jesus? I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I'm going to say it anyway. Right now, there's this big thing about taking Christ out of Christmas. Maybe you shouldn't shop at Target. They won't let the Salvation Army ring their bells and have their buckets out front. 
There's a lot of stores that have banned Christ from Christmas, which is just, it's kind of, it's funny when you think about it in a way. I mean, there is no Christmas without Christ, but they're banning Jesus from Christmas. It's become a secular holiday, and all the Christians are up in arms about it. And they all want to protest and do these, these things and file lawsuits. I think that probably should go on in a government. What are you going to do about it? Why don't you just share Christ while you're in line? You know, I mean, don't stand outside with a petition. We're not a political group. We're, we're Christians. They can't ban Christmas while you're alive. You're, you're, you've, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You can boast that. Hey, I say bring it on. I mean, the more that the world wants to go into darkness and, and, and shut us down, the more we will shine. The church, I'm not asking for it, I'm a, oh man, I'm afraid of it, but the church has always done the best when there was persecution. When it was, when the lines were really drawn, they said, hey, we hate you. We're going to do something about it. And then Christians said, okay, how about we just glory in the cross? You can't do anything to me. Jesus lives in me, and if you kill me, I'm going to go see him. And you know what? Chances are, while you're killing me, you're going to want to die too because you're going to see Jesus in me. Paul the Apostle. He's there helping the stoning of Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr of the church age. Stephen says, you guys have blown it. You're sinners. Stiff-necked generation. Man, they start pelting him with stones. He sees Jesus. And Saul is just, ah! But it had an effect on him. And it wasn't too long later in the story that he's on the road to Damascus and the Lord knocks him off his horse and he says, hey, do you know who I am? And he becomes this phenomenal apostle, the chief of sinners, the one who persecuted the church. It blew everybody's mind. That's our history. That's our tradition. That's, the, that's who we are. We're people that you can't shut up. When we show Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray together. Father, we appreciate these things. We're not up to it. Can't do it. Not a one of us here has the physical or the emotional strength. We don't have the intelligence. We don't have the oratorical ability. We don't have anything, Lord, to offer to this world except a crucified life. And I pray, Lord, that starting with me, and running through every other believer here, you would cause us to fall on our faces in humility before you and ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, by whom, Lord, we can walk crucified, carrying the cross, bearing the cross, that we could be seen doing that, heard doing that, that we would make a real difference in the hearts of people, not just in their retail sales or uh, in, in their legal codes, but in their hearts, that they would see something that is so powerful, so beautiful, that they can't resist it. And though they're in darkness, they would be like those drawn to the flame, and that it, in a sense it would destroy them, that they might live in you. I pray that this would be the most powerful Christmas that anyone can remember. Let them try to cancel Christmas, Lord. It can't be done until you take us out of this world. As long as we're here, we shine for you. 
But we cannot do it ourselves. We can't do it in and of ourselves. It doesn't matter how few there are of us. It doesn't matter how many. All that matters is that you fill us and that we overflow with that filling. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray it in Jesus' name. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that's not a believer, I pray that you would have been drawing them and that you would continue to draw them and that they would come forward after the service and give their lives to you. That they would understand there's only two people here, really. Lord, there's a, a repentant thief and an unrepentant thief. They're one of those two men. I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you and confess you as their King and Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Four o'clock. Children's musical. Be there or the kids will know it. May God bless you this Christmas season. I love Christmas. Don't you love Christmas? I, it's just it's a beautiful time of year they can't take it from us God's given it to us to shine all the more brightly so do that whatever that means listen again if you want to get involved in a boycott or a lawsuit God bless you that's your business uh, I just want to be involved in sharing Christ with people and I don't do that as well as I want to uh, but I want to I want to I want people to know that there is love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and joy in, in Jesus Christ. And so whatever that means to you, where you live, where you work, where you shop, where, where you live and all, then do that. And I do pray that this would be the most powerful Christmas spiritually that any of us have ever known. I don't think we have many more Christmases left before Jesus Christ comes back. Amen? Amen. God bless you.